the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Quite the uh, top two contenders the Democrats have going into tonight's debate and Saturday's primary in South Carolina. Joe Biden doesn't know what office he's running for. I'm here to ask you for your help. Where I come from, you don't get far unless you ask. My name's Joe Biden. I'm a Democratic candidate for the United States Senate. Look me over. If you like what you see, help out. If not, vote for the other by. Give me a look, though, okay? Okay. It's news to Lindsey Graham that you're running for U.S. Senate in South Carolina. Vote for the other Biden? Do you mean to say guy? I, the other Biden? Is, is Dr. Jill going to replace Joe while Joe runs for Senate in South Carolina? I don't know. Hunter, perhaps? One of the other hillbilly members of the Biden clan? Don't know. And this was after uh, Biden stumbled all over himself on Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan over the weekend. He never said that South Carolina was his firewall. He's just looking to do the best he can. South Carolina, though, was your firewall. You've said it, my firewall. I've never the said campaign it. has no, said it's your firewall. No, it's not fire. I said I'm going to do well there, and I'll do well there, and I'll do well beyond there as well. What does do well mean for you? Look, you guys can do all the pontificating about what it means. I'm not going to. That's not my job. My job is to go in and make the best case I can. And I think we're going to do well. And I think we're going to go on to Super Tuesday and do very well. Mm -hmm. And February 2nd, uh, he interviewed with NBC News. I think I'll do well in Nevada. And I think I have a real firewall in South Carolina. So uh, he did say that. But I mean, he can't even remember what office he's running for. So how can he remember something he said three weeks ago about South Carolina? You understand. There's Joe Biden. And on the other hand, you have Bernie Sanders, who is continuing to extol the virtues of Castro. And uh, I'm sure he will continue to extol the virtues of Ortega, whose virtues he extolled 30 years ago when Ortega was in power with the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. And he says he's not a fan of Putin, but maybe if we could get some of the old Soviet Politburo members back in the fold, Bernie would warm up and again regale us with tales of affordable puppet shows and lovely chandeliers. A lot of folks in Cuba at that point who are literate. And he formed the Literacy Brigade. You may remember, read that. They went out and they helped people learn to read and write. You know what? I think te- teaching people to read and write is a good thing. And by the way, all of those Congress people that you mentioned just so happen to be supporting other candidates, just accidentally, no doubt. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's uh, demands to be pointed out that before Castro toppled the Batista regime, 80 percent of Cuba could read. So it wasn't so much a literacy program that Castro went on upon assuming power. It was a propaganda campaign to gaslight the populace with communist agitprop, wasn't it, Bernie? By the way, most of Cuba's neighbors over the 
intervening six decades have also brought their literacy rates to near 100 percent. And uh, they did so, most of them, without disappearing anybody to get to that number. Remarkable. The, you know, everybody forgets the literacy brigade under Castro. I mean, you know, where would Bernie get this idea of having a stylized version of history when it comes to dictators? I don't know, maybe the New York Times. I mean, I'm just listening to Bernie provide this. Everybody forgets the good things that Castro did. You know, hey, I oppose the gulags. Everybody forgets the good things. That's what New York Times. Do you remember the New York Times? 1922, New York Times did a profile piece on Hitler. And it was Hitler in Bavaria. This is a year before the, his failed beer hall pooch. Hitler in Bavaria. You know, the Bavarian gentleman, long trail walks with his dogs. Oh, sure, there's some concern about his anti-Semitic ravings, but well-informed, reliable sources, unnamed then, as they so often are today, told the New York Times that was just a hustle for votes. He wasn't really serious about it. And then in December of 1924, after he had been freed from prison after his failed pooch, the New York Times, Hitler tamed by prison. He's no threat to the peace in Germany, tamed by his prison after the failed pooch. Huh. You know, you see what you want to see when um, you have somebody who you'd like to emulate in some significant ways. And I mean that in terms of state control. I'm not comparing Bernie Sanders to any of those dictators, but I am saying that his service as an apologist to brutal, murderous regimes like the Sandinistas, like Castro, like the Soviets, is an indicator of his belief in centralized control of the population and the means of production. Uh, I think Megan McArdle got it right in the Washington Post. Megan McArdle from the Washington Post, she tweeted out about Sanders. Most likely, Sanders is a committed socialist who wants the end of capitalism but runs on the farthest left platform he thinks he can get away with. He would go farther if possible. This is what his life history suggests, and I'm bemused watching smart people suggest otherwise. Like what in Bernie Sanders' 70-plus years on earth, his political record or his platform, makes you think that Sanders is really just a big government Democrat who wants to smooth over the rough edges of capitalism and make sure it hews closely to procedural norms? Nothing. Nothing. And the irony, of course, is that Bernie Sanders doesn't really make that case. Bernie Sanders apologists, while he's apologizing for dictators, you have a bunch of Democrats and uh, apologizing for him and trying to recast what his actual views are and his record, frankly. And then on the other hand, if Joe Biden is successful in scoring his first primary victory in three presidential runs on Saturday, What do you have with Joe Biden, somebody that will provide anything more than a speed bump to Bernie, assuming Bernie has a respectable second place finish where he finds himself in the polls right now? Uh, You know, the, 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 the remarkable suspension of disbelief about Joe Biden has really cost the Democrats, hasn't it? Forgetting who Joe Biden has been for three decades has really cost the Democrats because they've hung on to him. Well past his sell-by date. And now you've got Bloomberg marginalizing all of the alternatives other than himself to Bernie. But how does Bloomberg get home? 
and you sort of have the perfect storm for Bernie. You know, the, the argument about Biden, you know, Biden, oh, he's not in his prime anymore. Good piece by Naomi Emery in the Washington Examiner. What prime? He's not in his prime anymore. He never had a prime. And she goes back 30 years to his uh, 88 presidential run, recounting what liberal columnists were saying about him then. Paul Taylor writing his 1989 book, See How They Run, about Joe Biden. Someone once called Joe Biden the only 29-year-old underachiever ever elected to the United States Senate. Mary McGrory described him as a, quote, collection of good instincts and incoherent utterance, pleasant, energetic, but not in control, unquote. In The New Yorker, Elizabeth Drew wrote that Biden was knocked out by a weakness that was going to catch up with him, intellectual barrenness. He was, quote, a nice guy who hasn't demonstrated depth or mental or verbal discipline. Jack Germond and Jules Whitcover, Jack Germond, famously of the uh, Baltimore Sun, liberal, of course, uh, on his trail in 88 for his plagiarizing Bobby Kennedy and Neil Kinnock speeches wholesale. Something he had done previously in law school too. lied about his law school record. Lied about his undergraduate record at the University of Delaware. He's a fabulist. He always has been. It's the little things he lies about. Why would you lie about them? The medal that he didn't pin on the soldier's chest in Afghanistan. The uh, traveling to visit Mandela in prison most recently. Going back to the tragic accident that took the lives of his first wife and daughter and his contention that the driver was drunk. The driver wasn't drunk. And he was saying that 35 years after the fact. Why? Corn pop. And all this other nonsense. The guy has always, he's just, he's sort of a Chauncey Gardner, but he tapped out at U.S. Senate. He just exists. But his career has been unremarkable and frankly, often disgraceful. He's a nice guy, big smile. Oh, yeah, that nice guy with the big smile who did the, they want to put you all back in chains riff on Mitt Romney and Republicans in 2012. The Republican Party was the party of slavery. In 2012, under Mitt Romney, of all people, give me a break. So when his uh, candidacy for president ends ignominiously again in 2020, as it did in 2008, as it did in 1988, it will be good riddance to Joe Biden. The only shame is how he was able to leverage his position as vice president to enrich his family. And I'm sure by extension, when he's fully out of the spotlight, himself as so documented in Peter Schweitzer's new book. That's the only shame about Joe Biden. If I traded it all, if I gave it all away for one thing, just for one thing. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And uh, I did want to remark upon the uh, Kobe Bryant memorial service at the Staples Center yesterday. A star-studded affair. Didn't get to it in last night's show. But it's definitely worth remarking upon. There were some really poignant and also very funny 
uh, eulogies. Uh, Jimmy Kimmel, of course, uh, sort of emceed it, and uh, clearly from Kimmel's eulogy, uh, they had become very close over the number of times that Jimmy Kimmel had appeared. Uh, I mean, uh, Kobe Bryant had appeared on Jimmy Kimmel's show and probably in part traveling in the same milieu in L.A. as well. Here's how uh, Kimmel started the service. This is a sad day, but it is also a celebration of life, of their lives, and of life itself in the building where those of us who are Lakers fans and Kobe fans celebrated so many of the best times of our lives. Yeah, and as somebody who lived through the Jordan era in Chicago, you know, I know what that's like to celebrate uh, an artist who happens to also be a basketball player. And that's what Kobe Bryant was. That's what Michael Jordan was and is. And I remarked upon that, uh, if you recall, when uh, the the day after, the the Monday after the Sunday where Kobe Bryant's uh, death was reported, that helicopter crash. In my lifetime, you think of Kobe Bryant, you think of Michael Jordan, you think of Larry Bird, you think of Pete Maravich, you know, arguably Magic Johnson and, and Dr. J as well, but artists on a basketball floor. And you just uh, appreciate the opportunity to live uh, at a time where you can see such artistry in person. And it, it, basketball could be any other sport or any other art. You know, it's like seeing Pavarotti uh, sing uh, an opera. And uh, that's what Kimmel picked up on as well in his remarks talking about the artistry of Kobe. Everywhere you go, you see his face, his number, Gigi's face, Gigi's number. Everywhere, at every intersection, there are hundreds of murals painted by artists who were inspired, not because he's a basketball player, but because Kobe was an artist too. And not just in L.A., uh, across the country, in Kobe's hometown, Philadelphia, in Italy, in India, the Philippines, China, New York, Phoenix, Boston, for God's sake. <laughs> in places where he would be booed on the court, Kobe is missed. Even the great Boston Celtic Bill Russell wore number 24 and the Lakers jersey to yesterday's game. Yeah, and that was cool to recognize Russell and it was to see Bill Russell, uh, legend, Boston Celtics legend, in the audience as well. And then the a last uh, aspect of Kimmel's remarks that I thought deserved some ampli- amplification. Uh, the expression of gratitude in the face of his tragic passing. Uh, and, and by the way, Kimmel, as well as a number of the other individuals who provide eulogies, also recognize, obviously, Kobe's daughter, but the other seven individuals who died in that helicopter crash and the loss that their families and their friends are experiencing as well. So, obviously, Kobe is the iconic individual, but the, the others who were killed in that helicopter crash were not forgotten in the service, and I think that's important to remark upon. But Kimmel focusing on gratitude and also, and I don't know if Kimmel's a man of faith, I would tend to be skeptical, but maybe he is, uh, having a moment uh, where he encouraged fellowship, uh, those in, those attending, to have fellowship with their neighbors, you know, sort of the Catholic ritual of 
making peace with your neighbor. And uh, obviously that was Kobe and Vanessa's faith tradition. And so it was nice to see that respected. The best thing I think I was able to come up with is this gratitude. It seems to me that all we can do is be grateful for the time we had with them and for the time we have left with each other. And that's all. In the, in the Catholic Church, you know, which the Bryant family is part of at Mass, we share the sign of peace. This is a moment to uh, hug or shake hands with people around you. And it occurred to me that that is something that only seems to happen at church and at sporting events. When perfect strangers who love the same team are suddenly hugging and high-fiving and celebrating together. And so... Since we are here today to celebrate, I'd like to invite you right now to take a moment to say hello to the people around you, whether you know them or not, to be grateful for life and for the fact that we are all here together. Uh, so I, I, I don't have much use for Jimmy Kimmel, but I thought those were lovely sentiments and genuine sentiments, and you know they deserve to be recognized. Um, in addition to that, uh, Michael Jordan, his airness, uh, was in attendance and I and a eulogist and I, I don't think uh, perhaps a lot of people understood how close the relationship between Jordan and Kobe Bryant was how it developed over the years uh, as uh, Michael Jordan gave way to Kobe Bryant essentially as the league ambassador uh, but uh, Jordan certainly left no doubts after his eulogy and um, offered a light moment as well we talked about everything and he was just trying to be a better person now he's got me. I'll have to look at another crime meme for the mix. <laughs> I told my wife I wasn't going to do this because I didn't want to see that for the next three or four years. <laughs> that is what Kobe Bryant does to me. I'm pretty sure Vanessa and his friends all can say the same thing. He knows how to get to you in a way that affects you personally, even though if he's being a pain in the ass. But it sh he always, you ever have a sense of love for him and the way that he can bring out the best in you. And he did that for me. And Jordan said goodbye, big brother to little brother. When Kobe Bryant died, a piece of me died. And as I look in this arena and across the globe, a piece of you died. Or else you wouldn't be here. Those are the memories that we have to live with and we learn from. I promise you, from this day forward, I will live with the memories of knowing that I had a little brother that I tried to help in every way I could. Please, rest in peace, little brother. Uh, from the poignant to the light, uh, this was also a celebration of Kobe Bryant's life. And Shaq told a fun story. The day Kobe gave my respect was the guys were complaining. I said, Shaq, Kobe's not passing the ball. I said, I'll talk to him. I said, Kobe, <laughs> there's no I in team. And Kobe said, I know, but there's an in me in that m <laughs> <laughs> So I went back. <laughs> So I went back and told Rick and, uh, and Big Shot Bob, I said, just get the rebound. He's not passing. 
uh, it's good stuff. It was, uh, as I said, it was a fitting tribute to Kobe Bryant, his daughter, who was a, a, a basketball prodigy as well, and um, the other lives that were lost to that helicopter crash. This is the Dan Prop Show. And I'm feeling good. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. I'm uh, watching this uh, new show, new series on HBO called The Outsider. It's an adaptation of Stephen King novel and uh it's about a fantastical beast that takes human form really takes possession of human beings and um, and kills children in particular uh and you know of course it's difficult to get people to believe police investigating these cases that you could have some non-human entity be the responsible party for the murders that they're investigating and that is less fantastical than the stories you're getting from the cable news channels. And let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Now, we're we're three and a half years in on the Russian collusion, Manchurian candidate arguments that have been made by the left against Trump. And yet here is Larry O'Donnell on MSNBC on the occasion of dubious reports uh, about a and briefing by uh, of the House Intelligence Committee by the administration's election security specialist. But we begin tonight with another test of America's ability to be shocked by Donald Trump, who has very deliberately shocked America to the point where he hopes that shock has been replaced by acceptance. The president is a Russian operative. That sounds like the description of a bad Hollywood screenplay, but it is real. And it is Vladimir Putin's greatest achievement. Decades after America's victory in the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union, the president of the United States is now helping the president of Russia help the president of the United States to get reelected so that the president of Russia will have four more years of the president of the United States who he wants in the Oval Office. This is one of those shocking news days, if you retain the capacity to be shocked in the Trump era by the Trump regime, which might be better labeled the Trump-Putin regime. I assume that Larry O'Donnell and Adam Schiff have a treatment they're waiting to be optioned uh, in 2020 or perhaps 2021. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Eddie Scarry, commentary writer for Washington Examiner and author of the new book, Privileged Victims, How America's Cultural Fascists Hijacked the Country and elevated its worst people. Smollett hoax, the blaming Trump and MAGA for everything under the sun. Privileged victims, uh, per Larry O'Donnell, we are all victims of this Manchurian candidate in the White House, Eddie Scarry. <laughs> yeah, that storyline never gets old. They still talk as though the 2016 election happened to us instead of there actually being people who went out and voted and picked the candidate they wanted. <laughs> um, we'll probably see the exact same thing. Well, we're kind of seeing the exact same thing heading into 2020 it's always this is the dire election we have to save the country it's always as if somehow we ended up on the wrong course and not the 
democratically elected, <laughs> the elected path that we wanted to take. I always think it's funny when people talk about Trump eroding the norms or doing things differently from past presidents. I think, well, there is a reason why, you know, just a guess, but I think there's a reason why uh, voters chose the um, reality businessman game show host instead of the state <laughs> secretary of state, former first lady and former senator. <laughs> but now let, let me ask you a question. Privileged victims, how, uh, how uh, cultural fascists hijacked the country, elevated its worst people. Is this an argument that we have a cacistocracy, we're being governed or ruled over by our lessers? Or is it an argument that we're being lorded over by corrupt people who are talented at applying their corruption? It's a little bit of both, I would say, but you're, you're, you're closer on the first track. Really what this is and why this book is so important is because a lot of people hear about you know, social justice. They often hear about things like the, the Jesse Smollett um, hate hoax crime. And they wonder what's going on, but they don't really quite realize that all of these things are related. This is an ideology, and it's called social justice ideology. The point of my book is that using social justice, when this ideology has infected every cultural artery of the country, you have it in Hollywood, you have it in the national news media, of course, you have it in academia, where it's raging across college campuses everywhere, and then you have it in large part in the Democratic Party and the establishment in Washington. And what's going on is here is they're pushing this idea, reinforcing this idea that if you claim to have victimhood, or it, you know, it may not even be necessarily true, but you claim it, as with Jesse Smollett demonstrated, you just claim to have been a victim on the basis of your race or your gender or your sexuality. In the case of Smollett, who was the perfect, I think, scenario of, of what my book is talking about, he said, I was attacked by the privileged, and the privileged these days are always white male Trump supporters. Um, but he said, I, I, I was called gay slurs. They, they, attacked, they, they attacked me because I'm black. Um, and why did he do that? He did that because he knows in this culture right now, if you want to get ahead, if you want more money, if you want more fame, that's exactly what you do. If you want, if you want things done your way, you just claim to have been a victim, all related to race, sexuality and gender. When we come back with Eddie Scari, if you think we have reached reductio ad absurdum on this, you haven't heard the statement from Bill Cosby's publicist on the Weinstein conviction yet. We're going to pick that up with Eddie Scari, commentary writer for Washington Examiner, author of the new book, Privileged Victims, right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is The Dan Prof Show. back with Eddie Scarry, commentary writer for Washington Examiner and author of the new book, Privileged Victims, How America's Cultural Fascists Hijacked the Country and Elevated Its Worst People. And uh, on that score, Andrew Wyatt, who is the publicist for Bill Cosby on the occasion of Harvey Weinstein's convictions yesterday, uh, issued this statement. This is not shocking because these jurors were not sequestered, which gave them access to media coverage and the sentiments of public opinion. There is no way you would have anyone believe that Mr. Weinstein was going to receive a fair and impartial trial, notwithstanding that he was acquitted on three of the charges, but okay. Also, this judge showed that he wanted a conviction by sending the jurors back to deliberate after they were hung on many of the counts. Not unusual, but okay. Here's the question that should haunt all Americans, especially wealthy and famous men. Where do we go in this country to find fairness and impartiality in the judicial system? And where do we go in this country to find due process? Who will think of the wealthy and famous men, Eddie Scarry, the truly underserved 
the true victim class, wealthy and privileged men like Bill Cosby and Harvey Weinstein? Well, I will tell you, I have a whole chapter in my book on Me Too, um, and that, that's another infection that's been caused. It, it started out as a very noble idea, actually. It was about taking down men in power, like Harvey Weinstein, um, like others, that, that journalist, uh, Mark Halperin, a uh, former yeah. NBC journalist. It was about taking down people who... One, there was strong evidence that they did they didn't. In the case of Harvey Weinstein, there was audio tape. There was a countless women, but most importantly, the audio tape. And then second of all, after the New York Times broke the story about what was going on with him and how he wanted women to watch him shower, he wanted them to give him massages in exchange for deals with movies, um, he admitted it. He admitted what he did. He, said, he came out in a statement and admitted, I did this. It was wrong. I'm sorry. And then, of course, he backtracked, I guess, after his lawyer got a hold of him. But when he, when he admitted, he, he did something else, and this is important to remember, and I'm, I'm sure you do, but I just want to put an exclamation point on it. He said, hey, look, I don't have time to deal with this because I'm too busy fighting the NRA. But it's an important example of what they do. My leftism gives me privilege to act like an animal. Oh, sure, exactly. And that is what he tried to do, though. Someone should let him know that you don't admit to wrongdoing and then deny it. It usually comes the other <laughs> way around. You deny it and then eventually admit it. But as this pertains to Me Too in my book, it's that this this idea started out as a legitimate concept, Me Too, take down men, and we have evidence and we have proof, often in cases, but strong evidence at the very least. But it has morphed into this concept where every accusation is swirled into Me Too. You're seeing this with even the idea of a woman, it's usually a woman, saying that they regret the, the sexual encounter that they had one, two days before, even sometimes years before on college campuses you see this all the time and you're just supposed to take their word for it and this is again this is people oftentimes a perfect example E. Jean Carroll the advice columnist who wanted to sell a book so she comes out and says you know I think this is what last year but she says 30 years ago Trump raped me in a department store in New York she gets all the attention in the world her story is picked up by the New York Times New York Magazine she's all over cable news talking about it and it's all to sell a book but it's a, this is a great claim and she's a victim and she's a victim of the privilege so give her attention believe all women. That's the Hillary Clinton doctrine. Right. So, yes, there is a problem with the Me Too movement, <laughs> though I will say I'm glad Harvey Weinstein got what was coming to him. <laughs> well, a- absolutely. I mean, you know, why is it so complicated? Take each case on its merits, go where the facts lead, go where the evidence leads. And uh, when you have a case, somebody like a Harvey Weinstein, a-, a barbarian like him or like Bill Cosby, prosecute him to the fullest extent of the law. How is it so difficult to build consensus around that paradigm? Exactly. But this is the point of the social justice movement and then the, the, the new class of people who are emerging that I call privileged victims with love. I call them that. If you claim victim status, I'm a woman, therefore you have to believe me. I'm black. I've been oppressed by whites. I've been aggrieved. I've been victimized. Everyone else is just supposed to shut up and take their word for it. You live your truth. So I can't question you on that. You claim victimhood. I can't question that. There's been books on this concept before, but what I have found with privileged victims is that they're relating it back to their race their gender and their sexuality. That's supposed to be what makes you immune from any criticism. Everyone's supposed to believe you. And the point, again, I just want to say is that's how people have figured out this is how you get ahead in society. You want more money. You want more fame. Claim to have been a victim based on your race, your gender, your sexuality. You will rise to the top. That's, that's the point of this whole thing. And it's, and it's reinforced over and over again in Hollywood, in the national news media, by the Democratic Party. Um, and, and it starts in academia. That's where they're learning this stuff. And and it, it's important to uh, I'll go back to Lee Smith's uh, uh, column about this uh, in uh, the Weekly Standard in 2017. So uh, about two and a half years ago, he made an important point, uh, And this was from talking to some of his Hollywood friends. Why did the Weinstein story break when it broke? I mean, you know, obviously people inside the bubble in Hollywood had known about this for a long time. Why did it break when it broke? 
And he basically said, look, uh, Weinstein had control of magazines and the stories that would be optioned from magazines into movies in a way that uh, uh, basically made him untouchable or nobody wanted to mess with him. But when the media landscape changed and these magazines were no longer important, Harvey Weinstein didn't have that protection anymore. And so then it was an opportune time to tell the downfall of a media mogul story. So it has nothing to do with us getting better or Hollywood having raised consciousness. It was just a changing of the landscape that uh, removed the protection that uh, a Philistine like Weinstein had previously had. But don't mistake that for uh, you know, Hollywood becoming more enlightened or less barbaric. Oh, right. No, I think that's exactly right. And I think other people have made this point and may have even been in the piece that you're citing that they see Trump get into office and they think that this is kind of a way you can start taking these things supposedly seriously. So now any accusation that goes to Trump, well, we have to take that seriously, too. Um, and I just want to say, because I, because I myself understand how this works and I've got a book to sell, I'm wondering if I myself should accuse the president of having raped me about 30 years ago. <laughs> well, right. I, but it, it, it and it, it's interesting you talk about this, too, because this was something that was identified by Shelby Steele in White Guilt two decades ago, that the 60s movement on college campuses told uh, blacks that the way to power is by is through grievance. And mm-hmm. I, and if you if you lodge a grievance against the white power structure that, you know, that had obviously been part of racist institutions in this country's history, they were no longer America lost its moral authority. They lost their moral authority. They were going to capitulate. And that's the path to political power and uh, through political power, economic power. That's exactly right. And I, I have a whole chapter in my book on where what the history of, soci, of, of social justice ideology is. And it really it draws its roots from basically every every one of the left's bad ideas going back decades, feminism, um, critical race theory, communism, Marxism, socialism. It, it's all of those things in one thing. But it, it, it again, the foundation of it really is claim victimhood, grievance, claim oppression based on your sexuality, your gender and your race. And you will get ahead every time that way. He is Eddie Scarry, commentary writer for Washington Examiner, author of the new book, Privileged Victims, How America's Culture Fascists Hijacked the Country and Elevated Its Worst People. Eddie, thanks for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and my continuing proselytization for uh, dog ownership. Last week we uh, learned how, according to some researchers like Clive Wynn at Arizona State University, uh, it is not anthropomorphism to suggest dogs can actually love their owners, that you actually have a, a bond like that. Uh, and now we find in uh, new research that uh, dogs could be the key to curing cancerous brain tumors in humans. This is really interesting. Uh, in order to better understand and treat cancer, researchers often turn to experimental models that allow thorough observation experimentation without the involvement of actual human patients, of course. Uh, but um, a new study, and so a new study conducted at Jackson Laboratory. This comes to us out of Bar Harbor, Maine, may have found a novel way to study and analyze one of the hardest to treat forms of cancer in humans, diff, uh, diffuse glioma, 
the most common form of brain tumor. Researchers say studying and treating brain tumors in dogs will lead to effective treatment options for humans, particularly children. Brain tumors appear in domestic dogs about as often as humans, and just like among people, they're notoriously difficult to treat. Uh, it wasn't previously known, however, how similar dog brain tumors are to human brain tumors. So to start, the uh, study's authors ga uh, gathered 83 posthumous dog tumor samples for molecular examination. They compared the results of their analysis to brain tumor information collected from both child and adult brain tumor patients. And they noted a, a number of striking similarities between dog brain tumors and tumors seen in human adults as well as children. Similarities included mutations in certain genes and pathways, including the DNA repair system that's always changed in human brain tumors. Similar fluctuations in the number of chromosomes also observed. Again, it was observed that uh, dogs' immunological response to a spontaneous brain tumor also closely resembled what happens in human bodies, which is helpful because while immunotherapies in human medicine have shown great promise in cancer treatment, it's been difficult to achieve high patient response rates. So this may be an innovative way to measure the overall effectiveness of those immunotherapy treatments in both dogs and people. All these similarities in, uh, between human and canine brain tumors point to these cancers adapting to the same environmental pressures experienced by both species, according to the researchers, uh, despite the significant difference in average lifespan. Um, the, uh, the dog... Uh, the, the, the research team believe the findings indicate that if a cure for canine brain tumors can be developed, it would in all likelihood be very effective against brain tumors seen in human children as well, at least, you know, effective to some extent, uh, more uh, effective treatment than, you know, is currently available. So some promising research from man's best friend. And uh, now you know why he continues to be man's best friend. This is Dan Brown. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another installment of the Dan Proft Show. Follow us at Dan Proft show.com on Twitter at Dan Prof show and at Dan Proft and uh, President Trump press conference in India this morning addressed the uh, state of play with America's preparedness for the spread of COVID-19 even as he uh, requested yesterday supplemental funding to the tune of 2.5 billion dollars for that preparedness one of the other things he needs to do per former FDA director under Trump, Scott Gottlieb, removed the bottlenecks at CDC and FDA when it comes to laboratory design tests at hospitals around the country so they can do some of their own testing to identify persons infected and not just have everything funneled through the centralized bureaucracy of the CDC with 36 to 48 hour turnaround. You may ask about the coronavirus, which is very well under control in our country. We... Uh, have very few people with it, and the people that have it uh, are 
in all cases, I have not heard anything other. Maybe there's something new because for two days, I haven't been seeing too much of that news, of very much news, because it's been very all-encompassing. We've, we've accomplished a lot here. We had a lot of meetings, as you know. But uh, the people are getting better. They're all getting better. Uh, we brought in some Americans uh, from a ship because it was really the right thing to do, and they're in quarantine. And uh, we think they'll be in very good shape very, very soon. Health care experts suggesting we're still sort of in the two to four week period of critical period in terms of the potential uh, of it being spread, even as we've seen it spread now to South Korea and, and Vietnam and Italy. Dr. Uh, Peter Hotez writing at Fox News talks about other things that we can do, things that we can learn from the Chinese experience, like first and foremost, protect healthcare workers when it comes to the treatment of those who may be infected or and or who turn out to be infected. Also, of course, vulnerable people, more susceptible to uh, serious consequences from a flu-like virus than younger, healthier people. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by Paul Bryan, freelance journalist and automotive industry analyst, host of the His Turn, Her Turn automotive series. So uh, Wall Street Journal was reporting that UAW, United Auto Workers, say a shortage of Chinese auto parts could reduce the output at GM factories in the United States. So part of this is looking at the economic impact after the hemorrhaging in the markets yesterday and uh, give us your sense from your understanding of that industry of how impactful COVID-19 may be if it persists. It's affecting everybody right now. And I think that people need to have a better feel for how the auto industry puts cars together these days. Ford Motor Company, for instance, or GM or whoever it might be, they don't stockpile all of their parts in a big warehouse outside the plant. And as they uh, need them, they draw them out of that warehouse. Everybody uses what's called just-in-time delivery. They're counting on supply chains to come in from their suppliers. Many of them are Chinese at this point for just about everything that goes into a car. So much of it uh, comes from China. I mean, you can't build 99% of a car. You have to have all of it there, and it has to come in on normal schedules. And so everybody's production schedules are getting disrupted, and it's being seen as being disrupted rather even more. Understand also that I'm not the alarmist that some, for instance, one who... <laughs> yes, yes. We, know what, we know what an alarmist sounds like, yes. Yeah. It's not just in China either. Uh, many of you know that I spent time three years in Italy working for Alfa Romeo, and when I talked to my friends over in Milan and in Torino, where Fiat is based, everybody's really nervous over there. They have restricted travel in many of the parts. I, I saw some video of Milan last night and down on the Piazza La Scala and in the main downtown in the Piazza del Duomo, where it would normally be teeming with people. It was a total ghost town. And so people are being advised not to go to work. Some are just nervous about going to work. The Fiat plants are talking about coming back online next week, but we'll see. Wait a second. Wait, wait. I got to ask you a Fiat question here. So, so we're talking about sure. Uh, did you get to meet Gianni Agnelli? When yeah. You were... So I just watched a documentary about him. Uh, I think it was on HBO. But anyway, tell us about working for Agnelli and, and meeting him and what that time was like in the auto industry. First time I met him was uh, 1989 at the Geneva Motor Show. And he had people around him. This was a new program for Alfa Romeo coming into IndyCar racing. You know, he wanted to meet people who were involved in that. So I was introduced with him, to him and then we wound up having dinner. 
what was called the Fiat Party boat at that point at the oh, yeah. Geneva Motors show. Oh, yeah. Well, it was it was a huge boat, Dan. It had to be 250 feet long. And the first time I went there, my mentor said, this boat has everything but a priest for confession. <laughs> so that was the first time that I met him. I found him to be incredibly engaging. He's one of those people from an American standpoint or, or equivalent. I think of Roger Penske mm-hmm. when I think of having that kind of presence. When Penske enters a room, he owns the room. And Yali was the same way. And it didn't matter at Geneva if president of any other car company would be there. And the centrality of fiat in Italy, but Italy's politics as well as its economy. Many people credit him with the rebuilding of the North post-war and reestablishing fiat as a, a manufacturing force in, in that area. The Milanese and the Torinese, you know, they hold him in higher esteem than they hold many saints. He was a cool guy. He was that's just awesome. a cool guy. That's, I mean, that's yeah. like that's like meeting Henry Ford. I mean, that really is. It's just, so it's just fascinating to uh, talk to somebody that had that type of interaction with him. Okay, now we can get back to the alarmism. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good enough. Yeah. They've already postponed the Beijing auto show, which was coming up here shortly for obvious reasons. They've also postponed the Chinese Grand Prix in Formula One for the same reason. Now we're looking to Geneva because, you know, heck, Geneva is just a couple hour drive from Milan. There is rumbling talking about that. You know, everybody has to err on the side of caution on this thing. And I think that's what's really feeding the frenzy that's going on right now. What, if any, evasive action are uh, the big American auto companies taking in addition to canceling trips and err on the side of caution, as you're saying? But in terms of the evasive action they're taking here to keep production going, to keep things moving. I mean, that you can't let this stop so, the wheels from turning. Some of them are chartering airplanes to get stuff out. And I don't know how long that's going to last that the American government is going to say, you know, well, look, if you're hauling this stuff in from a place that we don't want it coming in from, how that's going to go. Let me see. It's Jaguar uh, Land Rover is now owned in India. But Volvo, for instance, is owned by Chinese at this point. They've got a big plant over there. There's a fair number of plants. Hyundai, last night I got a note from a friend who said that Hyundai was planning a global reveal in a couple of weeks in South Korea, and that's been put on indefinite hold as well. And I think that's a car that we're going to be in someplace, banga banga someplace, where they were going to show us that car in a couple of weeks. So we may get the, the global reveal on that rather than being done in South Korea. But they've got a lot of travel restrictions within the Korean car companies, within Hyundai and Kia in particular, where they've said, no, sit down. We're not flying people in. We're not flying people out. Holding fast for right now, and let's see what what plays out. You think this has all been engineered by Elon Musk to make everybody buy Teslas? <laughs> <laughs> He's got a coronavirus dance. Yeah. You know, exactly. it, it, it'd be an interesting thing if the cars weren't such drag. Boy, do they. And, and that's the thing that has to happen with that brand and with all electric vehicles right now. We see so much action around electric vehicles right now. And you say to yourself, why? You've got less than 2% of the market that's asking for them. 
So it, it seems like it's far more agenda-driven than it's uh, uh, demand-driven. And, and as long as we're in a demand, the, the other thing to remember, too, in this whole slowdown that we're seeing in the automotive sector, and yesterday, I think almost across the board, it was like about a 55 6% drop as a sector uh, with this big sell-off that we saw in the Dow yesterday. But, but automotive demand is a little bit different. Demand is not destroyed it's just delayed mm-hmm. and there are ways to do and around moves on that as well in in china geez china is down 90 percent on their their car deliveries for the month of february so far uh and 50 percent for the past three months i guess they're they're in a pretty challenging market right now overall yeah even before this happened well, that's why there some some projections are they're going to see a ten percent GDP drop and uh, GDP drop in Q one. Um, yeah, yeah. He is uh, Paul Bryan. He is a Gianni Agnelli protege, uh, freelance journalist, <laughs> industry analyst of the automotive industry, host of His Turn Her Turn Automotive Series. Paul, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Good to be with you, Cam. Take care. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show Welcome to radio's unchallenged authority on wealth, prestige, and success. It's another edition of Public Sector Pension Millionaire. Yeah, let's uh, spin the uh, list that I have here of uh, 17,000 Illinois government pensions that exceed $100,000 a year. That's like net present value, $3 million plus pensions. Uh, Here we go, here we go. Please meet pension millionaire Daniel Cullen. Daniel Cullinan is uh, retired from Northfield Township High School District 225, retired at the uh, tender age of 55. His annual pension is $124,000. His lifetime contribution to that pension, $145,000. He has received so far $1.7 million in pension benefits from the generous taxpayers of Illinois. Expected lifetime payout, $3.3 million. $145,000 in, three. $3 million out, guarantee. That's 4.4% of what he expects to get out. That's what he put in. La 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 ka-ching. We love it here because we're not in the business of educating children at the K-12 through level with very few exceptions. What we have here are K-12 through school districts masquerading as schools when in actuality they're just third-party administrators to confer benefits and salaries and benefits to the adults in the system. We have adult-centered education in Illinois. It's about salaries and benefits. It's not about putting kids on a path to a successful life. And that's a perfect segue to our next guest. Michael Petrelli is the president of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. He's a research fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution. Executive Director of Education Next, and uh, he has written a new book, uh, or he's edited a new book with Chester Finn, who's also at Fordham, How to Educate an American, the Conservative Vision for Tomorrow's Schools. 
Michael Petrelli, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. It's great to be with you. The conservative vision for tomorrow's schools, it seems to me uh, we need to pick up where uh, what we were just talking about. It's, it's nice to have a vision about what should be taught in schools and have a curriculum, but then you have to get past the gatekeepers, meaning the administrators and the teachers. If we're not properly selecting and training administrators and teachers, then all the best ideas in the world never make it to the classroom. And it seems to me that's where so many, at particularly urban school districts, but not limited to urban school districts, have failed. Yeah, and wow, those were some eye-popping numbers. Certainly, uh, it's well-known nationally that Illinois is a mess when it comes to education and to that pension problem. There's been an effort to reform our schools going back at least three decades, and there's been some progress here and there. You know, there is some greater accountability than there used to be, believe it or not, Uh, and certainly there's some sectors that are doing quite well, like the charter school sector in Chicago, where the schools are getting dramatically better results than the traditional public schools. Uh, And there's evidence that they're helping some of the nearby public schools improve as well. But there's still a lot of big problems. And lately, it feels like education reform has gotten stuck. Partly that's because of all the political fighting and the polarization. So this book was a chance to ask some super smart conservative writers and thinkers to tell us where should we go next on education. And they gave us some really interesting answers. You have scholars at the Fordham Institute that had a good piece that I uh, saw the other day, Training Teachers to Fail. And they talk about how student interest and choice in their education is prioritized over high quality education. Teachers are taught to be passive and essentially, I mean, Subservient may be too strong a word, but it's not that far off when it comes to what's going on in their classroom. Yeah, look, the the education schools have been a problem forever, uh, and they still seem to be just uh, just bringing new teachers through a system where they're not being taught the, the very basic aspects of how to be an effective teacher. I mean, you'd think that would be their role. Instead, they want to talk about philosophy. They want to talk about progressivism. Uh, you know, so you've got elementary school teachers, for example, that go through some of these ed schools and come out the other side not being taught the science on how most kids learn to read. We actually know quite a lot about how to teach kids to read, not surprisingly. We have this English language that's, that's phonetic, and you've got to teach kids how to decode the language. And there's elementary school teachers coming out of these ed schools that, that don't know this, uh, that are being taught to uh, have kids guess at words, that uh, looking for context clues, things that have been discredited for 30 years. It's it's real snake oil kinds of stuff, and it's a huge part of the problem. So in your book, you, as you mentioned, you've got a number of essays from a wide gamut of scholars and deep thinkers who are not necessarily scholars in an academic setting. The successful models around the country that should be replicated and scaled. Give us some examples. A couple of themes that come out of the book. I mean, one is that we're just not doing a good enough job when it comes to teaching our history to young people. Either we're not teaching it at all, which is unfortunately the case when you look at a lot of elementary schools. We're just saying, well, we're going to leave history and science and those other subjects till later. And so you go into a, you know, say second grade classroom and it's just completely vacuous and boring. Instead of teaching our heroes and the George Washingtons and Abraham Lincolns and Harriet Tubman, they're not learning anything. Then as you get older, what we see, if we do see any teaching of history, is it tends to be coming from a very leftward bias. Uh, we talk about the 1619 project coming out of the New York Times, this, this new effort that's now a curriculum that's basically trying to teach not only about slavery and, and the key role that played in our history, which, of course, it did and was a horrific institution, but that it explains everything about our history, that America is racist to its core. And this is now the curriculum that, that schools are using 
in many uh, schools across the country. In this book, what we try to say is, look, by all means, we need to teach our history in a way that is critical. We don't want to propagandize to kids and pretend that everything in our history has been perfect. So it should be warts and all, but it shouldn't only be the warts. We also need to tell a story to the kids uh, that is factual and that talks about the great successes that we've seen overcoming many of those challenges that we, you know, this has been a, a country that has very lofty ideals. We have struggled to live up to those ideals at times. There's been amazing Americans throughout the centuries who have fought uh, to better live up to those ideals. But that is not what's being taught in well, many places. Instead, the, the, the teaching is all about how America is horrible. Well, right. But, but so it seems to me that the uh, political left is a lot better at uh, pushing their agenda than the intellectually honest are in getting legitimate scholarship into K through 12 systems. And this is what has to change. I mean, again, I said we have all the good ideas. You have all the, the facts and, and the, the context that's important to a full understanding of history or any other subject. But if it doesn't get to the classroom, it doesn't matter. So Wilford McClay, a professor down in Oklahoma, has a new book called Land of Hope, a new history book that he's trying to get into mm-hmm. schools. You've got the 1776 Unites uh, uh, a group of academics and activists that are responding to 1619, and they've published uh, uh, 12 essays as their first offering in response to 1619, and also the alternative complete history of black Americans in America. So where's the infrastructure to carry some of the good work that is being produced that should be part of curriculum into these actual school districts? Here's some good news is that the infrastructure is the local school board. Look, we've been critical over the years at Fordham of local school boards because of all the reasons that you know, started this segment with. They have often agreed to these ridiculous benefits and pension packages and not been minding the store. However, the good news is they are the ones that make decisions like what gets taught in the schools, what kind of history books are used in the schools. And so, you know, for your listeners, find out what's happening in your own local school district. Uh, are they teaching the 1619 project or the 1776 project? You know, what is the textbook that's being used in American history? That you can find out. You can show up at a school board meeting and you can have some real influence on that. He is Michael Petrilli. He's the president of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, research fellow at Stanford Hoover Institution, executive editor of Education Next. The book, How to Educate an American, the Conservative Vision for Tomorrow's Schools, that he edited along with Chester Finn, a longtime education reformer. Uh, and uh, essays from a lot, a, a broad, as I said, cross-section of conservative thinkers and academics, definitely worth checking out. Michael Petrelli, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We talked about uh, Bolshevik Bernie Sanders' interview with Anderson Cooper on 60 Minutes on Sunday night on last night's show. Just to recall uh, Bernie Sanders finding the silver lining or silver linings to him. He just named one in uh, Fidel Castro's regime. Soviet Union and the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. And everybody was totally convinced. Here he is explaining why the Cuban people didn't rise up and help the U.S. overthrow Cuban leader Fidel Castro. And he educated the kids, gave them health care, totally transformed the society. We're very opposed to the authoritarian nature of Cuba. But, you know, you got, it's unfair to simply say everything is bad. You know, when Fidel Castro came into office, you know what he did? He had a massive literacy program. Is that a bad thing? 
even though Fidel Castro did it. There's a lot of dissidents imprisoned in, in Cuba. That's right, and we condemn that. Unlike Donald Trump, let's be clear, you want to, I do not think that Kim Jong-un is a good friend. I don't trade love letters with a murdering dictator. Vladimir Putin, not a great friend of mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you would think that uh, given 24 hours, Bernie may uh, uh, want to provide some context to his agitprop, something he is interested in promulgating. May not be interested in uh, the disappearing swads that uh, Castro used, but he certainly is interested in communist propaganda about Cuban literacy, which was at 80 percent prior to Castro toppling the Batista regime in 1959. Yeah. Oh, and those Latin American neighbors of Cuba have caught up in the ensuing six decades and uh, minus the death squads and the imprisonment of political dissidents. But that's not what Bernie did. He doubled down at a town hall. A lot of folks in Cuba at that point who are literate. And he formed the Literacy Brigade. You may read that. Brigade. Yeah, brigade. And they helped people learn to read and write. You know what? I think teaching people to read and write is a good thing. And by the way, all of those Congress people that you mentioned just so happen to be supporting other candidates. Just accidentally, no doubt. If only... Caesar Mike Bloomberg was as colorful as his campaign staff because they picked up on Bernie and uh, offered some tweets on the topic. Uh, other things Bernie has to say, perhaps on despots, hashtag Bernie on despots. Stalin spurred industrial production throughout the country, but all everyone wants to talk about is putting 14 million people in gulags. Ugh, so annoying. Who am I to question Kim Jong-un for starving millions of his own people when he opened a kick-ass water park with over 10 slides, a lazy river and a wave machine? What a blast. Hashtag Bernie on Despots. You get the gist. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by F.H. Buckley, New York Post columnist and uh, author of the book American Secession, The Looming Threat of a National Breakup. Thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Well, I'm happy to be here. Thank you, Dan. What do you think about Bernie uh, always finding the silver lining in uh, regimes like Castro and Ortega and the Soviets? (laughs) It's almost hilarious, you know. I mean, say what you want about Fidel; he made a damn good margarita. Sure, you know? exactly. Yeah, right. Let's not forget about that. Here's the deal with Bernie. I mean, as repulsive as his views are, start with the idea that a whole bunch of Democrats, a whole bunch of young people, are supporting him, and you know that's worrisome. I mean, partly it's a response; it's a reflection of our crazy school teaching anti-Americanism. But you know, he's got. Uh, he's resonated with people who think there are some real gripes out there, and he's not the guy who's going to solve them. But the gripes are there, and uh, you know I see this as kind of a part of an unfinished Trump agenda. You know, Trump would have the proper solution, or Republicans would have the proper solution to these kinds of problems. But the problems are there, right? You know, one but, but, of them, for example, is student debt loads. But I mean, can you reach people who have been? gaslighted the way that so many people have been gaslighted and and uh, have uh, accepted the uh, status propaganda of a Bernie Sanders about what they think they're entitled to when it comes to free college and debt forgiveness and free child care zero to four and minimum sixty thousand dollars salary for teachers and so on and so forth. Well, some of that stuff is nuts. And, you know, and, and, and other things, there's a real problem. Look, our, our universities are a mess. And what we did is we offered loans to students going to really expensive colleges and the colleges took that as an excuse to raise their tuition and every other country you know in the first world had a different kind of a deal the deal was okay we'll be the backup guarantor to student debt loads but you know you the university you have to cap your tuition we didn't do that and we should have done that and we're facing a problem where 
the debt loads are enormous, and a lot of kids are just letting the, the principal increase, and the interest rates are just almost extortionate. So you get people with hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollars in debt, and you know, and they've signed their their life away, right? For, for crazy degrees in you know women's studies or whatever, which won't get them a job. So they're unemployable, and they have no incentive even to look for work if everything goes to pay off the educational loan. Uh, We've created a, yeah. a race of, of debt slaves, and and, uh, and something's got to give. I, I want to pick up on that and something that uh, uh, Sanders has said uh, both in that 60 Minutes interview and on the campaign trail about uh, you know, bailouts for thee but not for me. More with F.H. Buckley, who is a... Uh, uh, professor at the Scalia Law School at George Mason University, as well as New York Post columnist and author of the book American Secession. Uh, we'll be right back with more fun. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and going back again to Bernie's interview with Anderson Cooper on 60 Minutes, explaining his uh, free child care for all Americans for children ages zero to four and uh, trying to answer the question, how will you pay for that? So what we are calling for is universal child care. How are you going to pay for this? We have a tax on wealth to pay for that. For all the people who like the idea of it, there are going to be a lot of Democrats again who are saying, well, wait a minute, yet again, this is another program that it's not clear how it's going to get paid for. No, it it's just going to add It to, is clear how it's going to be paid for. Look, Anderson. But it's more taxes. It's taxes on billionaires, you know? You know, I get a little bit tired of hearing my opponents saying, um, gee, how are you going to pay for a program that impacts and helps children or working class families or middle class families? How are you going to pay for that? And yet, where are people saying, how are you going to pay for over $750 billion on military spending? How are you going to pay for a trillion dollars in tax breaks to the 1% in large corporations, which was what Trump did? When you help the billionaires and you help Wall Street, hey, of course we can pay for it. That's what America's supposed to be about. Well, I disagree. We're back with F.H. Buckley, New York Post columnist, uh, professor at Scalia Law School at uh, George Mason, author of the book American Secession, The Looming Threat of a National Breakup. F.H., does Bernie Sanders have a point? You know, bailouts for thee and tax reductions for thee. What about for me? You know something? I hate to say it, but he's got a point. I mean, look, our tax code's a total embarrassment. And when major, major corporations in the tech area end up paying zero taxes, and that in part a consequence of a 2017 tax bill, you don't have to be a Marxist to say there's something wrong with that. So like I say, it's kind of like an unfinished Trump agenda. I and mean, Trump wanted something very different out of the tax code. And what the Republican House delivered was was different. I mean, we got a rollback of capital gains, which was uh, of, of corporate tax, which was good. But, you know, on areas like tax reform or campaign finance reform or educational loans, we're talking about a message from Bernie that resonates with people, and he does know the, you know, he does know how to get there. And in terms of economics, he's way out of it. But there's there are real problems there, and what we'd like is would be sensible solutions to the problems, rather than the wacko ones. So if you don't pick the sensible ones now, maybe you'll get the wacko ones later. 
Well, right. Isn't isn't that yes? Yeah. So this is a little bit of a of a comeuppance from the the bailouts of two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, uh, and and or just the general rent seeking behavior that both parties encourage and underwrite. And Bernie Sanders, uh, coming from the outside as uh, an independent socialist, says basically, uh, uh, you know, I don't want to do it for nobody. I want to use the opportunity of what you've done to leverage that to do backdoor government takeovers of all all sorts of sectors. Absolutely right. I mean, um, you know, uh, don't get me started on campaign finance reform. But, you know, the the thing is, we've got congressmen who come to Washington for a term or two, and then they they settle down permanently here as lobbyists. And, you know, um, so we don't have barriers to that, which we could easily have. It uh, doesn't happen in other countries so much. I'm in Alexandria, Virginia. I'm looking across the river at the Capitol. And when you're talking about corruption, what you're talking about is K Street and the interest groups and uh, the Beltway bandits. And, and uh, you know, ordinary Americans, you know, looking at that are bound to feel just a little disgusted and maybe betrayed by the idea of the promise of America. And if you don't address it, what you get are people like Bernie Sanders you know, peddling moonshine to try to cure problems, which, which, you know, their way would just impoverish all of us. So what we need basically is a continuation of the initiative of, you know, a continuation of the Trump revolution, which in part got stalled. And, and I mean, sure, it's three years in, you cut the guy some slack and all that, but, but there's an unfinished agenda. And and it is worth noting that uh, Bernie has a, a bit and, and so do the Democrats have a bit of a tough sell, uh, the gloom and doom that they're trying to sell when you have 70 percent of Americans saying they're optimistic about their economic future. Totally right. I mean, you know, which is why I think the November election will be a bit of a blowout. So, you know, that's fine. But when that many Americans show themselves to be so disaffected, there are a lot of things you should do about it. I mean, you know, better schools is one of them. Um, and, you know, and maybe I think the, the message from Republicans should be the guys who are complaining about inequality and immobility, the Democrats, these are the guys who are producing it. I mean, these are the guys who are kind of just cozy with an establishment that uh, makes, you know, them, makes congressmen multimillionaires, uh, you know, which permits schools to be to remain mediocre because of their alliance with teachers unions. I mean, when you get down to it, yeah, there are real problems, but mostly they're caused by liberals. Well, right. And it would be nice if uh, maybe some Republicans and conservatives could uh, provide more definition between the two sides by, say, taking on and defunding the Export-Import Bank. Or, as you sort of suggest, having President Trump take on the uh, funding mechanism for higher education and tell Yale, Harvard, uh, your $30 billion endowments that's what's going to be used to fund Yale and Harvard educations, not taxpayer dollars, for example. Exactly. Yeah, exactly right. You know, on, on educational debt, I mean, you know, one thing I propose, I propose a number of things. But one thing was no guarantee, no federal guarantee for student loans if tuition exceeds 25000 So the message is if you want to go to college, you know, you go to state university and you'll, you'll probably actually get a pretty good education there. But if you really want a garbage education for 60000 bucks a year in tuition, go to Oberlin, only then let Patty pay for it. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, and also, too, you know, there are examples out there that to give lie to the arguments of, of the other side of the sort of establishment in higher ed. 
like Hillsdale College, which accepts no federal funding, or even a better one, uh, Purdue, where Mitch Daniels has held the line on tuition nine years running. So if he could do it at Purdue, why can't you do it at, you know, state school, private institution X? Yeah. So, uh, by the way, if you do all that, you know, nobody looks at dollars more avidly than college administrators. So if you put that kind of a regime in place, you just sit back and watch some of those crazy courses disappear. Mm. I mean, universities are cross-subsidizing diversity officers and administrative bloat, but also a bunch of courses that unfit students for real jobs. You know, where an employer will say, this is what you majored in. You know, I don't know if it's going to work out. He is F.H. Buckley, New York Post columnist, Scalia Law School professor at George Mason University, author of the book American Secession, The Looming Threat of a National Breakup. F.H., thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. This is life, unfortunately, imitating art. That is, if you consider Sasha Baron Cohen's Borat movies art. A, the Belgian city of Alist says its anti-Semitic parade is just for fun. This Belgian city, and you, you can't believe the pictures. I'll tweet them out at Dan Prof Show, at Dan Prof. This is from the BBC. Belgian city defending a carnival featuring caricatures of Orthodox Jews wearing huge fur hats, long fake noses, and ant costumes. Uh, critics said likening Jews to ants was similar to Nazi anti-Semitism, which prosecuted, excuse me, persecuted Jews as vermin. The mayor's spokesman told the BBC, it's our humor, it's just fun. We don't wish harm to anyone. It's our parade, our humor. People can do whatever they want. It's a weekend of freedom of speech. Well, you may be free to offer these caricatures and that speech, but it doesn't make it in good taste, does it? It doesn't uh, show particularly well for the town or the town's people participating. It is worth noting uh, Nazis deported about 25,000 Jews from occupied Belgium to the Auschwitz death camp where most were murdered. You think that would be an odd thing to celebrate satirically? Holy cow. Uh, there were other floats in the parade that mocked uh, the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson and Brexit, as well as Greta Thunberg and Jesus Christ, for good measure. <laughs> I, I, nobody's unscathed, I guess. Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, they all, by, by the way, they also had um, Nazi characters. Um, they had, uh, uh, people dressed up in like stormtrooper uniforms with, with long blonde wigs. I, I don't, I'm, I'm missing the sense of <laughs> humor here. Uh, it's just remarkable. Where's, uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme when you need him? Uh, the Belgian prime minister was not having any of it. She said that the parade in Alice harms our values and our country's reputation. Yeah, I'd say so. The use of stereotypes, she went on to say, stigmatizing communities and groups based on their origins leads to divisions and endangers our togetherness. Uh, and the uh, Belgian League Against Anti-Semitism 
uh, had the expected response, calling it sad, deplorable and shameful. And it's by the way, this is a small representation of the town and, of course, the country of Belgium. Uh, the uh, head of the Belgian League Against Anti-Semitism say, said 50 persons are tainting an entire carnival, a popular celebration, giving a catastrophic image of the city of Elst uh, uh, along and, 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 and uh, as well as the country abroad. Well, there's no question about that. We wouldn't be talking about the carnival but for this. And it really is just shockingly ignorant. Uh, no word on whether Ilhan Omar was present in costume. This is the Dan Prop Show. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prop Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another installment of The Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com, on Twitter, at danproftshow, and at danproft. And uh, I don't know if they're going to have time to remove his name from the ballot, but Joe Biden has dropped out of the presidential race. He's running for U.S. Senate in uh, South Carolina. I'm here to ask you for your help. Where I come from, you don't get far unless you ask. My name's Joe Biden. I'm a Democratic candidate for the United States Senate. Look me over. If you like what you see, help out. If not, vote for the other by. Give me a look, though, okay? I don't know if there's another Biden running. Maybe Jill is going to take his place in the presidential race while he runs for U.S. Senate against Lindsey Graham. When you say also out loud, I'm running for U.S. Senate, doesn't something trigger in your mind to say, wait a second, no, I'm not. It's one thing to misspeak and then quickly correct yourself because you're actually listening to what you're saying. Bernie is uh, sticking with Fidel. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of folks in Cuba at that point who are literate. Mm-hmm. And he formed the Literacy Brigade. You may remember Brigade that. is a good word. And they help people learn to read and write. You know what? I think te- teaching people to read and write is a good thing. And by the way, all of those Congress people that you mentioned just so happen to be supporting other candidates, just accidentally, no doubt. Yeah, uh, the literacy death squad. I mean, brigade. I mean, uh, here's the thing uh, with respect to Bolshevik Bernie's invented history of Cuba. Before 1959, when Castro deposed Batista, 80 percent of Cuba could read. So the island was well ahead of its Latin American neighbors in literacy. In the ensuing six decades, uh, many of those neighbors have moved to near universal literacy as well. And they did so without death squads. As a Democrat, I don't want to be explaining why our nominee is encouraging people to look on the bright side of the Castro regime when we're going into the election of our lives. Of course, literacy is a good thing, but why are we spotlighting the literacy programs of a brutal dictator instead of being unambiguous in our condemnation about the way he has treated his own people? Unfortunately for Manic and Pete, uh, Bernie Sanders has been his hero from a young age. We have the Manic and Pete essays lauding Bernie Sanders when he was you know, coming up as the, the prodigy that he is alleged to be. Hmm. And so Bernie Sanders had been making those comments about the Soviets and the Nicaraguans, I mean, the Sandinistas, and uh, Castro for a generation or two before 
Pete was a glint in his father's eye. Uh, but it w- was the occasion for the Bloomberg camp to have some fun with uh, trying to get uh, hashtag Bernie on despots to go viral. Uh, he uh, they uh, gave, they gave some other suggested offerings for Bernie's uh, reviews of dictators. Stalin spurred industrial production throughout the country, but all everyone wants to talk about it is putting 14 million people in gulags. Ugh, so annoying. Bernie on despots. Who am I to question King, Kim Jong-un for starving millions of his own people when he opened a kick-ass water park with over 10 slides, a lazy river, and a wave machine? What a blast. Vlad Putin is willing to poison anyone who disagrees with him, but you have to, But have you seen how that guy looks without a uh, shirt? Mmm, delish. Bernie on despots. For more on uh, what tonight's debate may hold, and uh, boy, if only if only Bloomberg could deliver some of those lines in a debate setting rather than having his campaign have to tweet them out, it could be interesting. Tonight's debate, Saturday's primary in South Carolina, first in the South. We're pleased to be joined by Andy Brack, political columnist and publisher of the Charleston City Paper. I love Charleston, South Carolina. Andy, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, it's 60 degrees here and raining, not 36. Charleston is yeah. right under... Well, not today. Well, it's raining okay. on CBS and CNN, but, you know... Well, that's... So, a, so that's you know, you can't have... Every day can't be. But that is my... Other than Naples, where I have a place, if I was going to move somewhere, it would be Charleston. I love that place. Uh, anyway, I digress. You don't need to know about my future travel plans. It's just a great city. And it's also the home of Garden and Gun magazine, which uh, I'm a big it fan is. of. Yeah. I know a lot and about Garden, Charleston. Garden and Gun, just so you know, Garden and Gun's owner is my partner here oh, at the oh, City Paper. Oh, really? So we're all just incestuous down here, as everybody probably figures anyway. That's great. Okay, good to know. Very good. Yeah. Well, um, so let's, let's start with Bloomberg. And I just wonder, I know he's not on the ballot, but he will be on the debate stage. And I wonder if uh, with the, the seeming air of inevitability of Bernie right now as the nominee, if you're hearing I from— I disagree. Go okay, ahead. okay. But if you're hearing from South Carolina Democrats that— uh, chatter about Bloomberg or chatter about somebody else as the candidate we need to coalesce around to try to stop that. Yeah. Well, you know, what I hope Bloomberg does tonight is recite some of the billboards he's been showing all over the country, like Donald Trump cheats at golf. I think that's hilarious. I think they've got a really good sense of humor, <laughs> and I hope that they keep it up because it's just this has been such a dull campaign in general that uh, we need somebody to inject some humor into it. And humor would be, you know, I think in South Carolina, if anybody thinks Sanders is going to win, um, he'll get the 20 to 25 percent that he gets in lots of places. I don't buy the national media uh, line that Sanders is ascendant and Sanders is definitely going to be the nominee of this, that, and the other. I think if you look at the three states where there already have been early voting, you've got about 600,000 people who have participated and in the 2008 primary here, you had about 540,000 people in South Carolina. South Carolina is a diverse state that reflects most of the rest of America. And I think that it's going to be a, a bellwether right before Super Tuesday. And, you know, there's not going to be really much more of a chance for the candidates to speak to people before Super Tuesday than tonight's debate. Right. So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. I don't know if y'all know there's a new, while y'all are poking fun at our Senate candidate, Joe Biden. Yeah, um, exactly. Which, listen, I used to work for a senator. They say that so many times, he's probably just says it in his sleep, too. So he got a little confused. But, um, you know, there's a new poll out that gives him a little bit more space. It came out yesterday, said he had 36% to Sanders, 21%. 
Um, and the difference in that poll was that Sire rocketed down to 8%. Mm. So, you know, Sire has spent 15, 16 million dollars in South Carolina. I mean, you, you, you couldn't get away from him on TV for a long time. And I think now that Biden's come into the, the state and is doing a lot of politicking and he's got his own TV out there, people are kind of evaluating now. Do you, do you go with Biden as the moderate? Do you go with Steyer, who's the spoiler? And Sanders just isn't a popular guy here. I mean, you guys got to remember, South Carolina has the lowest unionization rate in the country. So there's not a lot of little socialists running around here in South Carolina. The problem that Joe Biden has past South Carolina is that um, how he presents on the trail, as per that clip, uh, you mentioned Fritz Hollings and Strom Thurmond. Uh, There are people that think he has about the same mental acuity as those two do at this point. Yeah, well, both of them have no mental acuity. Well, right, so, I understand. That's sort of my point. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, that on his yeah. feet is, is is I mean, if you look past South Carolina to Super Tuesday, um, you know, it's one thing to talk about Nevada and Iowa and New Hampshire. Bernie Sanders is leading in Texas. It's close, but he's leading. Yeah. He's right there neck and neck with Bloomberg in Florida. So in, in the big Super Tuesday states, I mean, Bernie's right there. He could be. I mean, you know, we'll we'll see what happens, but... I just don't think that it's all if you read I've had um, reporters from other countries in the office this week because everybody seems to want to visit. And, um, uh, you know, they keep talking about Bernie and they they keep thinking that it's over. And I just think that we're a long way from over and it's going to be a huge mess over the next few months. With respect to uh, South Carolina, just going on the other side for a minute, one, Graham's reelection, two, Haley in 2024. Your thoughts? I wrote a column this past weekend that I've put Lindsey Graham on the mute button for the next six months because I'm tired of hearing the sycophantic behavior. I think most folks here assume he's going to get reelected. I think that it'll probably be closer than you think. The Democrat, Jamie Harrison, if I had to guess right now and make a bet, I'd say he gets 48% and Graham gets 52% or something like that. It's really hard in South Carolina to get that extra 2 or 3% to put you over the 50% hump. So, you know, I, I, Graham's done a lot of things to make sure that the Republican base is not mad at him because they were mad about three or four years ago. Right. And they were talking about, you know, primarying him. That won't happen now. Um, and so you just got to figure out, you know, is, is his base going to be enough, um, to beat an African-American democratic challenger and traditionally it should be, but you know, odder things have happened. He is Andy Brack. He's political columnist and publisher of the Charleston city paper. And, uh, and wait, are you also involved in garden and gun or just your partner? No, no, he's just my partner. Oh, okay. All right. Gosh, that'd be a fun thing to do, wouldn't I, it? I was going to give you credit for that. Yeah, all right, very no, good. No, no, no. Uh, right. I'll take it, but I didn't do it. No, I just have a, an alternative weekly newspaper. Very good. Andy, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Y'all take care. Bye-bye. and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We talked in the uh, last hour about uh, America falling below replacement rate in terms of births, and we'd be in real demographic trouble but for immigration. This uh, coincides with Monday's initiation of the crackdown on immigrants who use public benefits, the new self-reliance rules that uh, would disqualify more people from getting green cards if they use government benefits. So, of course, this had uh, a lot of people in um, areas where there are heavy immigrant population, particularly Latino population, but not exclusively, uh, moving to sign up for government programs prior to the new measure taking effect after the White House won in the Supreme Court the litigation for every state other than, of course, my home state of Illinois. But can you focus on growth, human growth, employment growth, and also suggest that, yeah, yeah, we want people coming to this country to be self-sufficient. What's Those two things are not mutually exclusive, and this proves it. The Trump administration plans to allow 45,000 additional seasonal guest workers to return to the United States this summer, the highest number since the president took office. This was according to a number of administration officials who spoke with The Wall Street Journal's Michelle Hackman. wasn't clear whether the White House had fully signed off on the numbers, saying that uh, they could change, but that was the posture so communicated to this Wall Street Journal reporter. The seasonal work program known as the H-2B visa program enables U.S. employers to hire as many as 66,000 foreign workers a year with the allotments split evenly between winter and summer season. So the, the some winter and summer season, Congress permits DHS each year to raise that cap by as many as 64,000 additional visas. In Mr. Trump's first two years, DHS raised the cap by 15,000 to 81,000 total. Last year, it raised it by 30,000 to 96,000 total. The additional visas will primarily be available to workers who have previously qualified for the H-2B visas because the administration has more confidence they'll leave the country once their job assignments end, as they did previously. This is good news. There's additional reporting. Washington Post acting White House chief of staff Mick Mulvaney told a crowd at a private gathering in England last week that the Trump administration needs more immigrants for the U.S. economy to continue growing. We are desperate, desperate for more people, Mulvaney said. We are running out of people to fuel the economic growth that we've had in our nation over the last four years. We need more immigrants. But, of course, we want those immigrants to come in a legal fashion. Mulvaney also added the rule of law is not anti-immigration. There is nothing mutually exclusive about being a welcoming country to people who want to come here and build a better life, particularly when we need the manpower, also enforcing the law and knowing who's coming in here and why they're coming to the country and making sure they check out. Those are not racist policies. They're not anti-immigration policies. And it's important that uh, to note that Mulvaney and the Trump White House needs to understand the need for uh, workers in this country. And I would say this is uh, the opportunity for the new self-reliance rules is a way to uh, should be a way to expedite your entrance into this country, both in some type of legal permanent, legal temporary, legal permanent status or even path of citizenship. You prove that you are here to contribute because you want to have a better life for yourself and you're going to make America better as you pursue uh, your better life, then, yeah, that's something that's attractive. And I don't care where you come from. Such an important moment to connect these dots, because this is an issue so easily demagogued, as we've seen, of course, from the open borders crowd, the eliminate ice, the uh, our ice and border patrol agents, our Nazi stormtroopers. I mean, these are this is the position of the AOCs and the other socialist spice girls. 
and it's a lie. And it's and it's in addition to being a lie, it is also unproductive in terms of achieving what so many say they want to achieve, which is more people who want to come to this country to build a better life being able to come. Hmm. Imagine that. And uh, there's more evidence, despite yesterday's sell off amid uh, COVID-19 hysteria, there's uh, more evidence that um, uh, as long as we can fuel the growth opportunities that are present, they will they're going to be present. Morgan Stanley made a huge bet last week. Uh, underreported story. Thirteen dollar, thirteen billion dollar bid for E-Trade. Thirteen billion dollar bid for E-Trade. Um, this is a bid by a big bank. Um, and it would be the biggest bank takeover since the uh, 2008 Great Recession. Uh, that is an effort by Morgan Stanley to grow its non-effluent customers, which they see as a source for growth. Uh, amid sluggish trading and, and deal making revenues, the journal opining on that, but that this is clearly a belief that middle income families are becoming richer. And while Democrats p- prefer to focus on inequality and wealth distribution through the central government, uh, Republicans could be focusing and big banks like Morgan Stanley are making big bets on a growth environment, meaning more wealth accumulation for middle income families and a whole new clientele to serve, and that's good news. And at the local level, we see this as well. This story, hottest U.S. job markets in uh, metro areas, sort of by population size. It's really interesting to note. Uh, Hottest job markets. This is, again, a Wall Street Journal study uh, that was, uh, uh, or a Wall Street Journal story, excuse me, that is from data collected by Moody's Analytics. Austin, hottest job market for metro population with more than one million people in the country. Austin, Texas. Nashville, number two. Denver, number three. Uh, SeaTac, Seattle, Tacoma, Bellevue, number four. San Fran, Salt Lake City, Raleigh, Orlando, DFW. Well, I'm thinking airport. Dallas, Fort Worth, obviously. San Jose, you know, sort of Silicon Valley, big tech center. Uh, interestingly, Cincinnati, Boston, Cambridge, San Antonio. Uh, go all the way down. There are 53 metropolitan areas, more than a million. You know, Austin, Nashville, low tax, red states, Denver, purple state. You know, there's some outliers. There are obviously some liberal areas, but they're the beneficiaries of big tech like Seattle, like San Fran. But most of those hot job markets in the top 10, like seven of the 10, low tax, low regulation, red states. Now go down to the bottom. Detroit, Pittsburgh, New Orleans, New York, L.A., Chicago. Yeah. Uh, Those those big cities in particular, Chicago, L.A. and New York being at the bottom of this ranking of best job markets in for metropolitan populations over a million in the country. That's really startling. The top three cities in the country are stagnating. They're dying, not because they're not cool places to live, not because there's not talented people there, not because there's not wealth there, but because they have stultifying local policies 
and various problems that are different from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. You know, L.A.'s homeless problem versus Chicago's violent crime problem versus New York's uh, rent control slash taxation problem, New York City. But uh, those, you know, that's that's about 12 million people worth of population, those three cities. And they're the uh, among the worst job markets for metro populations more than a million in the country. It's all policy driven. Those policies matter. They matter. And we're seeing it. And the policies that are happening at the federal level with respect to responding to the worker shortage, they matter too. Hey, holler at the moon, shoot out the light in small town. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and it's interesting as we've tracked this phenomenon, the never-Trumpers that are questioning their never-Trumpism, and even uh, some that have flipped entirely, like Eric Erickson, didn't vote for Trump in 2016, but sure as heck are going to vote for him in 2020. Why? Because he's exceeded expectations, delivered on a lot of things that are important, particularly to religious conservatives in the direction of religious liberty, in the direction of the protection of life from conception to natural death. I mean, the first president in American history to speak at the March for Life rally. That's no small thing. More importantly than the rhetoric, the action behind it. You even have Brett Stevens, never Trumper, Wall Street Journal migrated over to the New York Times, questioning uh, his never Trumpism if Bernie Sanders is the alternative, keeping his fingers crossed for Bloomberg. Uh, Another is Nathaniel Blake, not in the Brett Stevens sense, but who has rethought his position on Trump, didn't vote for Trump in 2016. Here's why I hope he gets four more years. That's Nathaniel Blake's piece at thefederalist.com, where he is a senior contributor. Nathaniel, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Dan. What is your change of heart on Trump over the last four years from 16 to uh, you penning uh, that piece last week about your hope that he gets reelected? Well, it's been a couple things. The Kavanaugh confirmation fight was a galvanizing moment for me, mm-hmm. as I think it was for a lot of people. And then just looking at the results he's delivered, I didn't trust him in 2016, but he has kept a lot of his promises in particular to people who care about the sanctity of life, care about judges, people who care about the constitutional freedoms, particularly religious liberty. Yeah, Rusty Reno over at uh, firstthings.com wrote a piece several months back, which is sort of a remarkable statement, particularly coming from uh, somebody like Rusty, who's a a principled, uh, thoughtful Christian conservative, saying that by the standard of, the political standard of, does a politician do or attempt to do what the politician said he or she would do if they were elected? By that standard, President Trump has been the most honest president in his lifetime. It's sort of remarkable to think about it that way because of Trump's history and because of all of the very legitimate concerns people had about his integrity and his commitment to the things he was saying in the campaign. You know, you watch him in practice and ultimately it's behavior, it's work product that wins the day, right? I think so. And I think then the flip side of Trump keeping a lot of his promises for me has been the way the Democratic Party has lurched to the left. He looks like Bernie Sanders will be their nominee. You just mentioned that. And he's not only a socialist economically, but he's hard left on social issues. So on abortion, 
he favors unrestricted abortion on demand with government, with taxpayer dollars. And that is something I just can not support. And I think it's surprising anyone would support that and call themselves a Christian well, he, or pretend to care about the sanctity of life. So, so how do you address the, uh, the, the, those who are uh, committed Christians, like, say, David French, uh, who retain their antipathy towards Trump uh, politically, uh, retain their sort of never Trump disposition and essentially argue, as far as I can tell from reading a lot of his work and the work of others that are similarly situated, former National Review types and whatnot, that, uh, you know, what people like you or me are doing is selling our souls for 30 pieces of silver. We're selling our principles for some short term victories like judicial nominations and tax cuts. Well, I respect David French a lot, but I think he's wrong on this. And I think that reminds me of an old Christian joke you've probably heard, but, you know, there's a flood coming. People are told to evacuate. Hmm. Some guy says, oh, I'll trust God to protect me. Neighbor comes by in a car, says, come on, let's get back town. No, God will protect me. Boat comes by uh, as the floodwaters are rising. Come on, I can save you. No, God will protect me. Finally, a helicopter comes. He still says, no, God will protect me. He dies. He makes it to heaven. And he asks God, why didn't you save me? God replies to him, I sent you a car, a boat, and a helicopter. What more did you want? <laughs> yeah, right. exactly. And I sort of feel like, right, it's an old joke. I've heard it from a few different pastors in my life. I feel like that's a bit where we're at. We want to protect innocent human life. God, for whatever reason, we get Don- Donald Trump is elected, and he's nominating Federalist Society judge after Federalist Society judge. Maybe we should just accept that we're winning on this in ways we didn't think we would. And maybe that's the miracle, is that a man with a sordid history is elected president and nominates great judges and puts some great people in his administration who are working to protect human life there. Uh, yeah, I want to pick up on that when we return and also uh, talk about your review of uh, Ross Dothat's new book on decadence. We're talking to Nathaniel Blake, senior contributor at the Federalist, Federalist.com. We'll be right back with more. Expose political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is The Dan Prof Show. We're back with Nathaniel Blake, senior contributor at The Federalist, thefederalist.com. We were talking about uh, his change of heart on Trump from 2016 to present based on what Trump has actually done. And you were specifically talking about judges and uh, pro-life efforts and furtherance of the pro-life movement. And, yeah, you know, what I've said about Trump is he's basically like Batman, at least the Dark Knight version of Batman. He's not the hero you want, but he's the hero you need. And so it's funny how people can't accept it's one thing to accept a politician's word. It's another thing to watch three years of work product and say, well, I still don't trust it. Yeah, I think that's very true. The thing about Trump as well is um, I just was sort of thinking about this, and maybe this is too much of a stretch trying to reconcile it. I think of uh, Pope Benedict famously saying that, you know, the devil doesn't come dressed as, the, as evil. He comes dressed as a false good. 
to some extent, maybe, you know, good doesn't always come dressed as good. It doesn't come dressed as Sir Galahad. Sometimes good is, at least a, particularly in a secular political sense, is a product of the times and the environment and where the pressure is directing a person to act. You know, Trump figured out that here is the, the constituency that can provide the basis for victory. And so here's the constituency I'm going to serve because it served me well politically. Now I'm going to keep the promises I made for the purposes of it continuing to serve me well politically. That may not make him a philosopher. It may not make him a Christian theologian, but it makes him, you know, again, going back to what Reno said, something approximating an honest politician. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that what we're looking at is question of do we need politician to be one of us or can we accept that maybe we're in a situation that Christians would have been had they been allowed to vote during the the Roman Empire you know you have to take your pick of pagans maybe but God can use them yeah I mean so this is one of the arguments that's made right is that uh, you you, by by throwing in with Trump you're saying that character doesn't count when it comes to a, a president or when it comes to a politician more generally conservative position has rightly always been character is destiny. So how do you reconcile the two? I think that I would say character counts. I'm not sure that I'd say from a political standpoint, character is destiny, because as you pointed out, politicians can choose to deliver on their promises for a variety of reasons, and not simply because they are honest, dependable people, because it's in their own political self-interest to deliver for their constituents. So I think we can say character is important. It matters. But it is not dispositive, and there are times, depending on the gravity of the issues and the alternatives, where Christians can vote for someone of poor character in good conscience. Uh, I wanted to turn to uh, your review of Ross Dothat's new book on American decadence and uh, talking about sort of the stagnation that is occurring across the different sectors of our society. And uh, you zero in on one in particular, and that's our birth rate. Um, the uh, the resource that is becoming conspicuously scarce, particularly indigenous uh, with, with respect to indigenous families, is progeny and what that portends for America's future. Well, I think first, Ross Duthon's new book is great. I would recommend people look into getting that and reading it. He raises this question of declining birth rates in the U.S. I think we're at something like 1.7 births per woman when replacement rate is 2.1 or so, Mm -hmm. that means the American population is declining and shrinking, stagnating. And there are a lot of places across the Western world where it's even worse. Uh, Japan has kind of led the way into this grim cycle of an aging population that's not replacing itself. But across Europe, across parts of Asia, and of course in this country, and that shows people who are forgetting the essential human things of men and women coming together, being committed to each other, and then raising a family looking toward the future. And instead we see people talking about not having children because they're so worried about climate change or how can you bring a child into this world, even though by historical standards it's fairly peaceful and prosperous. And that shows a lack of hope, a loss of hope. Thinking about Japan, right, Mark Stein's famous uh, line that – Japan should have invented the walker rather than the walkman as its population has um, is, you know, it's, it's in serious trouble in terms of demographics and demographics is destiny. If you're not growing, 
you're dying, and that's not just in a corporate environment. That's also with respect to humanity, your population. And and I wonder if, um, you know, uh, it, you point out, as Dothat points out in his book, that the, the decadence, the stagnation can last for a long time. You know, the end is not tomorrow or 12 years from now. It can linger for a while. But the question is, is it reversible or is it just an inevitable slow descent into the darkness? And so how do you reverse something as profound that you have to do with some advanced planning you know, or advanced thinking, not planning in the central planning sense, like uh, family, like family, uh, like like producing children, like uh, fa- intact families, like the primacy of the family? Well, there is no guarantees of success, but I think we've touched on a few things already. So, you know, you mentioned Rossirino and First Things, which has been at the center of some rethinking of conservative dogma and trying to recenter conservative economic thought around the family. And we can also, I think, have some hope insofar as False doctrines, false ways of living hurt people, and if Duthot is correct, which I think he mostly is, then what we will see as Christianity further recedes, as we sort of languish in decadence, is a lot of people who are hurt by this, who have lost hope. And what I would look for then is for Christianity and for Christian ways of living to become more attractive to them. And as the contrast sharpens, we might see, and we can pray for, for Christians, a revival. And we can't predict that. The Spirit moves in some ways. But we've seen this sort of thing before. I would focus on the transition from the English Regency period to the Victorian period, where there really were great moral reforms made, um, William Wilberforce and others, and not just with regard to the abolition of slavery. Mm -hmm but where society's morals changed and there was a renewal. He is Nathaniel Blake, senior contributor at The Federalist, thefederalist.com. Uh, check out his pieces, both his review of uh, Dothat's book, The Long Autumn of Our Content, as well as his piece on voting for Trump in 2020. I didn't vote for Trump in 2016. Here's why I hope he gets four more years. Nathaniel Blake, thanks so much for joining us on The Dan Prop Show. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Oh, The more you'll know, this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and it's one starfish at a time. I'll take every one. Legsit, blacks leaving the woke, progressive, intolerant, totalitarian left. Glexit, gays leaving the woke, progressive, totalitarian left. The latest, Ariel Scarcella. She's come out, and she's walking away. Hi, I'm Ariel. I'm a lesbian, and I don't think gender is a social construct. I don't think cis, straight, white men are evil. I don't believe that genital preferences are transphobic or that there are 97 genders. I don't think that male sex offenders belong in women's prisons. I don't think it's normal for people to be praised for walking around with shirts that say kill turfs. I don't think like these people, and I no longer want to be associated with them. I've reached peak LGBT. This is my coming out video. Never in my life have I been more canceled, tortured, tormented, harassed than by members of my own community. Never have I witnessed 
witness literal mentally ill individuals who are latching themselves onto the LGBT community without actually being LGBT for the sake of oppression points, external validation, and sympathy. Never have I seen such disrespect from younger LGBT people to the older lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender advocates who have been paving the way for us for longer than we've all been alive. Never have I seen people that use the word bigot so frequently and not see the hypocrisy and irony in themselves saying it. Some of you have noticed this change coming onto my channel within the past two years as I've gotten what some people would say more conservative. And yeah, I have, haven't I? Since the queer movement right now is obsessed with all these different labels, and I am a fan of labels, I wanted to share a new label of mine with you. I'm coming out. I am officially leaving the left. She gone. Uh, when she said I'm getting more conservative, there was, if you watch the video, sort of a fun pause where she sort of looks down and, and takes stock of what she just said. I uh, can't believe it herself. We've become so obsessed with validating everybody. How did we not see this coming? This community has become so ridiculously intolerant while preaching love that for the first time in a decade, LGBT acceptance is down. Anyone who goes against the grain and thinks for themselves is immediately outcast. That's not a community, that's a hive mind cult. Once again, my name is Ariel. I'm a lesbian YouTuber. I've been making content on this platform for 10 years and I no longer want to be associated with the ridiculously woke left. About it, uh, Red Rover, Red Rover, come on over, Ariel. Uh, here's the thing, uh, by turfs, by the way, you know, you got to get the uh, lexicon down. Trans exclusionary, exclusionary radical feminist, that's a turf, just so you know, you keep score at home with all these acronyms and terminology and put that in your intersectionality folder. Um, but it is, uh, it is fun to watch people. Well, come to terms with the intolerance of the left and the irrationality and illogic of so many of the positions taken. Preach love and behave in a hateful manner. Uh, preach tolerance and shout people down because you don't agree with them or you don't want to allow them to speak on a college campus. Uh, and so, you know, take as many thoughtful people coming over as possible to uh, have rational conversations and civil discourse about how people who disagree uh, live constructively together in a free society. Thanks for joining us on another edition of The Dan Project. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is The Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.